We are in Exodus chapter 14, the crossing of the sea. Uh, it's an interesting story, and, and we'll look at that together. One of the things that's uh, interesting as we enter into the story is, is, you know, I don't really like violence, and this is a fairly violent story in which a number of people are killed. Uh, I find religious violence is even worse than regular violence because when we bring God into it and we begin to justify our violence with the divine, that becomes even more problematic. And, and what's worse than killing people is killing people in the name of God. However, when uh, the people that are being killed are oppressive slave masters who attempted the genocide of a people, it does feel slightly less bad. This story of Exodus 14 is the story of God's rescue. The story appears throughout the Psalms and the prophets, and from this time forward, many of the biblical writers will look back to this moment in particular and will sing songs about how God led them through the dry land or made a way through the sea for them. And it becomes pivotal in their understanding both of God and God's rescue uh, and also of their own history of story. And so I want us to read uh, Exodus 14 together this morning. And I'm reading from the Common English Bible. And let's just read. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and set up camp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You should set up camp in front of it by the sea. Pharaoh will think to himself, the Israelites are lost and confused in the land. The desert has trapped them. I'll make Pharaoh stubborn and he'll chase them. I'll gain honor at the expense of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did exactly that. When Egypt's king was told that the people had run away, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people. They said, what have we done letting Israel go free from their slavery to us? And so he sent for his chariots and took his army with him. He took 600 elite chariots and all of the Egypt, Egypt's other chariots with the captains on all of them. Side note. If you're thinking, is 600 a lot or not? Uh, 250 was kind of like a good army size. So 600 is a lot of chariots. This is a, a very big army. Uh, some of us maybe not familiar with Egyptian warfare tactical. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of chariots. Okay. Uh, 600 elite chariots and then all the other ones. And the Lord made Pharaoh, Egypt's king, stubborn, and he chased the Israelites who were leaving confidently. The Egyptians, including all of Pharaoh's horse-drawn chariots, his cavalry, and his army, chased them and caught up with them when they were camped by the sea at this pie place in front of the Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh drew closer, the Israelites looked back and saw the Egyptians marching toward them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you took us away to die in the desert? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt like this? Didn't we tell you the same thing in Egypt? Leave us alone. Let us work for the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to work for the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So let's just pause there for a minute. Because we're going to see a theme, and this theme will continue throughout the story of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and the rest of the Hebrew Scripture. The theme is this, that when we experience discomfort, it distorts our memory. 
the Israelites, as they begin to experience the discomfort of Egypt coming in on them, it begins to distort their memories. Because it was their crying out to God in the land of Egypt that began this whole story in the first place. There were a lot of graves in Egypt. They were dying already in Egypt. They were under the rule of an oppressive genocidal king who was killing their babies. And yet, once they're out and they're beginning this exodus and they've experienced the goodness of God and God's saving hand has moved them out, and now that they're trapped, now that they're caught and pinned in, the discomfort begins to distort their memories. And they say, didn't we tell you that this would happen? Weren't there enough graves? It would have been better for us to die back there. And so uh, the question that I ask is, do you feel trapped? Are you pinned between a sea and an army? Are you thinking clearly in that moment? Are you remembering rightly? I want you to ask, God, where are you in this situation? Because the Israelites don't ask God, where are you? They allow their discomfort to distort their memory and they fail to look to God who is present with them. I don't know. Uh, for me, that is a word for me. I, I just feel like the second half of my week uh, was not good. Um, heavy meetings, hurt feelings, frustrated, troubled, water in the basement. And when we enter into these moments of, of just trouble, of feeling trapped, of feeling pinned, of feeling discouraged, I think we need to remember that often that will distort our memories. And so where did God call you? How has God brought you to the place you are now? Where is God leading you in this moment into what next thing? And if we run and we give up and we get too frustrated or too hurt and we give up too quickly, we'll miss the next thing that God wants to do. And we'll flee back to our slavery. We'll flee back to the land. We'll forget the way God has already saved us and has already done so much for us and has already brought us as far as he has. The Israelites struggle with this over and over and over. They go, man, it would have been better back in Egypt. And it's like, really? You were slaves. <laughs> and so let us remember that discomfort often distorts our memory and that's our time not to look to the sea, not to look to the army, but to turn our eyes back to God and see what is God going to lead us to next. The story continues. Verse 14, uh, chapter 14, 13 to 18. But Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. Stand your ground and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You just keep still. And then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to get moving. As for you, lift up your shepherd's rod, stretch out your hand over the sea, and split it in two so that the Israelites can go into the sea on dry ground. But me... I'll make the Egyptians stubborn so that they will go in after them, and I will gain honor at the expense of Pharaoh and all his army, his chariots, and his cavalry. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain honor at the expense of Pharaoh, his chariots, and his cavalry. I love uh, verse 13 
Uh, so often, this is a word that we need. Stand your ground. Watch. God will rescue you. Just keep still. Right? I have that highlighted in my Bible. It's like sometimes we just need to like stop. We need to wait upon God to rescue us, to work for us. We are called to stand still, to watch God as God will save us and liberate us and redeem us. And interestingly, as I highlighted my Bible, not this one, my other one, my study Bible, uh, I missed verse 14, which is hilarious, because at first it's stand your ground, watch, God will rescue, just keep still, and then verse 14, why are you crying out? Get moving. <laughs> stand still, get moving. What, which, what, which one is it, God? Like, and, and, and I just think that there, there comes a time when our crying out to God must become action. We must balance both prayer and moving forward. Sometimes we need to stand still and allow God to move and rescue us, and we watch God's saving power, and other times we need to move. Thoughts and prayers are not enough. The body of act must move into action. It's time to go. It's time to move. Which one do you need if you are feeling pressed in on the sides? Is it time to watch, or is it time to get moving? Then, verse 19. God's messenger who had been in front of Israel's camp moved and went behind them. The column of cloud moved from the front and took its place behind them. It stood between Egypt's camp and Israel's camp. The cloud remained there, and when darkness fell, it lit up the night. They didn't come near each other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord pushed the sea back by a strong east wind all night, turning the sea into dry land. The waters were split into two. The Israelites walked into the sea on dry ground. The waters formed a wall for them on the right hand and on their left. The Egyptians chased them and went into the sea after them, and all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and cavalrys. As morning approached, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian camp from the column of lightning and cloud and threw the Egyptians into a panic. The Lord jammed their chariot wheels so that they wouldn't turn easily. The Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water comes back and covers the Egyptians, their chariots and the cavalry. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. At daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. The Egyptians were driving toward it and the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and cavalry and Pharaoh's entire army that had followed them into sea. Not one of them remained. The Israelites, however, walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters formed a wall for them on their right hand and on their left. And the Lord rescued Israel from the Egyptians that day. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the amazing power of God against the Egyptians. The people were in awe of the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. This is the supernatural act of God's spirit in this story. The word used for wind that splits the sea is the same word that is used for God's Holy Spirit. It is the spirit of God that hovered over the creation of the world, over the vast void, over the waters of the deep in Genesis. It is the spirit of God that splits and creates dry from water. Pete Entz writes that throughout the Bible, water brings either death or life. 
depending on what side you're on. The creator who ordered the cosmos at the dawn of time is now in the same manner saving God's people from the enemy. And so we see in this story the theme of creation and salvation. And these themes are tied closely together. One thing I just wanted to observe is that God doesn't delight in the, de- the destruction of the wicked. Uh, Ezekiel 18.32, God says, Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord God? Certainly not. If they change their ways, they will live. And so there's an ancient rabbinical tradition that pictures the angels of God breaking out into a song at the destruction of Pharaoh's armies as the bodies sweep onto the sea. And there's this, this story in Jewish tradition of the angels breaking out singing praise. Oh, God, this is so great. And God rebukes them in this tradition, in this story. Rabbi Johannan, uh, 180 CE to 279, so just, just after Jesus, taught God does not rejoice in the downfall of the wicked. And so he, invi- he imagined God rebuking the angels with the words, the work of my hand is being just drowned in the sea, and you want to sing. And so let us remember that even in this moment, there is a heartbreak. As much as we might want to celebrate the downfall of Pharaoh and his evil armies, we remember the words of Ezekiel, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord? Certainly not. God's handiwork, he loves them all. So let's ask a practical question. What does this story have to do with us today? How do we find ourselves, or where do we find ourselves in the story of Exodus? So often, I would like to be the people of Israel. That seems like a very good place. I would like to be the one who walks on the dry land, but I have to recognize that I live in a world in which even the poorest among us is rich in view of the world, that many of our things that we uh, enjoy come at the expense of of poor people and nations that, that the The minerals that make my iPhone so fantastic and work so well are mined by children in oppressive places, and so I am the beneficiary of slavery and oppression and uh, human rights violations. And so we have to admit that we actually are maybe sometimes more like Egypt than we are Israel. But I don't think that it's quite as either or (laughs) as that. Uh, The divide between Egypt and Israel lives right between all of us, and we all live in that. And so my friend Chandra, uh, who preached on this text at our Attridge site a while ago, asked the question, he said, so so if, if dry land symbolizes life and the water symbolizes destruction, what parts of our life do we need the waters of God's judgment to come over and end? And what parts of our life are we walking on dry land to new life? You see, the Exodus Sea crossing is the act of new creation. God is creating a new people as he leads them through the dry land, and he is washing away and destroying an old way of life and an old pattern of death. In Genesis 1, God splits the waters and the lands. In 1 Peter 3.20, P. 
Peter says that Noah and his family were saved through the water. Again, it's that image of passing through the water that God saved them. And so water symbolizes creation and salvation. And so I wanted to read just two more verses for you. The first one comes from 2 Corinthians 5.17. We see this theme of new creation and salvation. Paul writes, He died for the sake of all, so that those who are alive should live not for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Is that the right passage? So in Christ, we are a new creation. I'll keep reading. So then from this point on, we won't be recognized people by human standards, even though we used to know Christ by human standards. That isn't how we know him now. So then if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of a new creation. The old things have gone away, and look, the new things have arrived. All of these new things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And so we have this in Christ salvation, a new creation. And then 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2, Paul ties this story of crossing the sea into the story of our own baptism. He says, brothers and sisters, I want you to be sure of the fact that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all went through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so Paul talks about this Exodus moment as Israel's baptism moment. The moment in which they passed through the sea, they left an old life behind as they walked through the dry land. God recreated them into a new people, into a new land, and he set them free. And so each one of us, too, is invited into the baptismal tank. We're invited to symbolize our death to the old life by passing through the waters. As we dip you down into the waters, we say your old life it dies so that you may be raised to new life with Christ. It symbolizes our salvation, our walking from an old way into a new way, that through the waters we are now saved. It is a starting over. It is a fresh start. Through the water we remember baptism and the death to our old life so that we can start to live in the new creation. For that is who we are. We are a new people created by God, for we have passed through the waters. We have let the old way die so that God can start a new thing in us. Amen.